Good evening, friends. How are we? Woo, come on, hey, let's stand together tonight. And uh, if you haven't had the chance yet, go ahead and greet the people next to you, behind you. Give a nice hello from afar. And uh, let's worship our good King and friend Jesus this evening. What do you say?
glad that you've come to worship Jesus in this room with us tonight. And uh, you're welcome to take a seat. Well, good evening, Mosaic. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with lust, codependency, fear of the future, and a lot of other things. And my name is Josh. Hey guys, I'm the student ministry team leader for Celebrate Recovery. It's our Friday night ministry. And we just celebrated 19 years of ministry on this campus last night. So if you don't know much about Celebrate Recovery, buckle up. I wanna tell you a lot about Celebrate Recovery. We know that in life, in this broken world, we experience hurts, hangups, and habits, broken things in our lives, both in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And if you're here tonight, you may be going through a season of pain and brokenness, whether it's addiction or it's grief or just different things going on, trying to understand the world around you and process that. Mental health issues, whatever they are, Celebrate Recovery is a ministry to find healing in Jesus Christ. And we, uh, Mosaic is my home church, and Celebrate Recovery is a ministry that I am passionately a part of, and have experienced, I've experienced life change through, my family's experienced life change through, and, and we want you here tonight, if you're a part of this Mosaic body, and if you're a part of uh, experiencing or pain or um, wanting to learn more about Celebrate Recovery, we'd love for you to experience healing through what Jesus is doing in that ministry as well. And so uh, we are heading into our 20th year of ministry, and we're really excited about that. We can't believe the things that God's already done on Friday nights. We believe there's things that the Lord still wants to do. And so if you've ever been curious about joining Celebrate Recovery, we meet here in this room every Friday night at 7 p.m. And if you get here a little early, there's food. We have a meal every Friday night. We'd love for you to come join and come see it. And if you uh, are curious about what that 12-step process looks like, we have an awesome team that walks you through it every Friday night. Uh, and I'll be here at the service here in the front if you have questions for you or for someone else. Uh, and also, uh, as a student ministry team, I love to, a student ministry team leader, I love telling people, this is a family ministry. We love giving students the opportunity and families the opportunity to go through healing together. So if you're curious about Celebrate Recovery, you want to walk in this 20th year of ministry with us, come join us. We're really pumped about that. But also there's a lot of awesome ministry opportunities happening here in Mosaic as well. Uh, next Saturday, we have a student worship training. As you see, we've got people up here, uh, students up here leading in worship. And we are really excited to give students opportunities to lead here in our church. And so if you or your student, or if your student has a, a, a skill that they want to cultivate and grow, or just curious about that, we would love to give them the opportunity. We're going to have people from our team from Friday night and Saturday night doing workshops and helping students in the opportunity of growth. So you can go to that QR code. It's next Saturday from 1 to 3.30 p.m. We'd love for your 6th to 12th grader to come join us. Uh, also coming up, we have winter retreat for FSM Mosaic students. Uh, so if you've not signed up for that, please, you do not want to miss that opportunity. Uh, sign ups, you can go to this QR code right here. It's going to be a new life ranch. Uh, our Mosaic student ministry team loves these opportunities uh, to get away with students and to really invest in them, for them to find uh, the hope and healing that only comes through Jesus. Also, if you are a family and you are looking uh, to dedicate a baby, if you have things coming up, we have the opportunity for parent-child dedication Mosaic, again, is a family ministry. We want this to be a place where you can bring your child and the church can come alongside you and give you the opportunity for your child to grow and know Jesus. And so if you're curious about taking that next step of baby dedication, go to this QR code as well.
Saturday, November 19th, we'll have the opportunity to dedicate some babies up here on this stage, which is one of my favorite types of nights to be here, um, to get the opportunity to pray for those families and for, for you to present your, uh, your child to the body and invite that prayer to so you can go to this QR code or you can email Jen Kanak. Uh, her email is right up there by October 28th. I want to make sure and get that information. Um, with that being said, if you have any more questions or if you're a newcomer here to Fellowship Mosaic, we invite you here. We are so excited that you are here. Um, we can make sure you get connected. The best way to connect or have any follow-up questions, we have a booth right outside that we can answer any of those questions that you might have. But we are so glad you are here to worship with us and to grow with us together. I'd love to invite you guys to a moment of pause and prayer as we move on with our service. You guys pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing here. We thank you for your deep love for us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would meet us here wherever we're at, that we'd recognize the things that you've done in our lives, the things you're doing now, and what you are planning to do. Lord, will you open our hearts um, in the community of believers to both acknowledge you and acknowledge what you're doing in the worship and the word and in time and prayer today, God, would you be in our midst? Love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friend, I'd love to invite you tonight to take the posture of a worship leader. Uh, we don't have the band. We got a couple of instruments, our wonderful choir. Uh, I love these nights, but also we want to hear your voice this evening. And not only do we want to, we actually need it. Um, as later we'll see in the book of Ephesians that as we sing these hymns and songs, it's not only us declaring these truths for ourselves, it's actually singing them over and declaring them over one another. So as we sing tonight, would, I just encourage you, would you help the people around you to lead them into a posture of worship? as you pray and sing. Sing with us. Were creation suddenly articulate With a thousand tongues to lift one cry Then from north to south and east to west We'd hear Christ be magnified sing this together. Were the whole earth echoing his imminence, his name would burst from sea and sky. From rivers to the mountaintops, we hear Christ be mad. Let's sing it together, church. Finds its inmost melody and 
time we gather in this place is to be formed more into the image of Jesus, that we could live and look more like him. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced the generosity of God in your life lately, but isn't he a generous God? Yeah, you can clap for that. That's an awkward little like solo clap from the choir. He's a generous God. And uh, our hope in this time is the offering plates come and, and it's a way for us to practice generosity, to give continue to further not just things in this room, but what the saints are doing in Northwest Arkansas and the world. And as the plates are passed, we have this prayer that we like to pray every Saturday as just a way to, to renew our minds and our hearts and to align as we just sang the altar of our life fixed on Jesus. So I invite you as the plates are passed, whether you give online or give in this place or you 
don't quite feel led to give tonight, I ask would you pray this prayer with us that we could be formed together to be more generous. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen.
scripture here in a moment, but I invite you to take a seat and um, the, the members of our body, David and Dana, who are actually gonna come read the scripture, got to watch what we just sang about Jesus being at work in and through a saint here at Mosaic in their community group. So check out this life change of the Holy Spirit at work in and through the saints. all the emotions. I was angry, I was sad. I mean, there's just so heavy that I had to lose everything to realize I had everything. You look back on it and you think, okay, this was, this was horrible. How did we get to that point? What did I do? There's always redemption. There's always hope. There's always more to learn. There's always ways to grow. You just have to keep the faith. grew up in church. So um, God was all over my house and I knew it as a little child. And throughout that time, throughout life, uh, he's been there for me. There's been ups, there's been downs. And then he, he loved me throughout. Jesus has always been a part of my life. I haven't always been the, the most faithful servant, but Jesus has always been watching over me. We were both married 20 years before both divorced. We met at a Christmas party. We got to know each other slowly over a period of time and became friends. Divorce is never what God wants. It's never what is ideal or what we would even want. And so then from that, um, building a new life is challenging. And there's certain hurts and struggles that are different than in a blended family than if you are not a blended family. And that's kind of what we found when we first went to community groups. The church had this, uh, this session where they asked people that uh, had been through a divorce or going through a divorce, they invited us to come to, I think it's the training center back there, and quite a few people showed up, and from that, we started a group. We're not together, that group per se, but there's a lot of groups that came out of that group. And then we still go out and eat with some of those people, we see them, we, we still live life with the old groups. It's not like our group today is it. I mean, we, we have a lot of relationships from the other groups. We've been meeting in this group for 15, 14 years now. In a blended family group, we all share similar struggles and we all understand the where we've each been. Being able to be real and to be able to share very intimate things, you know, confidentiality is so much more important. And so you have to give a lot of grace and you have to receive a whole lot more grace. And navigating all those relationships while still keeping the priorities of your children, they're the most important and everything has a center around them. Yes. They didn't divorce their parents. Our community group consists of uh, people from all the different congregations. Just being able to walk through a divorce, walk through being remarried um, and raising children and just having that support in that community has made, has made it just so much healthier and so much more as God would have us do it. I think that just having people to walk beside you during difficult times, um, but just to show you the road. Sometimes you just don't know what the road looks like. Mm -hmm. 
the pain of, of divorce is really what drives blended family because you want to get through this pain. It's not going to just go away. You got to do something with it. And in the healing process, we can maybe be of some type of service or help. That's really what our community group is really all about. It's a lot of broken people. When we first get in these community groups and we've only been married a few years and we got blended families, it's difficult. And I, that's, that's what I value so much about our community is over time, you really you get pretty real. This is a safe place. I can talk here. We laugh, we cry, we live life together one day at a time. And really to me, that's kind of like our mantra. That's, that's us. Stand now for the reading of scripture okay. and, uh, as we welcome Dave and Dana out to read for us. Hi, I'm Dana. I'm David. We're the beings. We are grateful to be Christ followers and uh, very thankful for the fellowship to allow us to be a part of the blended family community groups. We'll read Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Let's begin with uh, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former self, your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. Therefore, each of you must put falsehood, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands and that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be a benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me take a seat. You know what the name Fellowship Mosaic means? It's been a, we try to bring this up fairly regularly to make sure it's front of heart and mind. Uh, the idea of this congregation is centered on a metaphor, and it acknowledges the truth that every single one of us has been broken by sin. That we have done horrific things, and we've had horrific things done to us. And, and Scripture gives us a name for those horrible things that humans do and have done to us, and it's called sin. 
because those, those horrible things we do to each other is not what God has for us. It's not what he designed us for. And so we acknowledge that truth, that sin has shattered us, but here's the incredible good news. These shattered, broken people matter so much to God. Every single human being, despite their brokenness, is precious to God. And the good news is that when those broken yet valuable people come under the name of Jesus, God starts to do something in their life. He starts to transform and change them into something new. And not individually separate from each other, but as a part of a family, they start to take on a new look. And those broken pieces come together to make a picture of God's wisdom and his love and his power, a mosaic that depicts the goodness of Jesus. And so that's what we understand our congregation to be is a group of people submitting our brokenness to the love and the direction of Jesus to be transformed into something better and something beautiful and something life-giving. And I'm so thankful to the beings for how they have shown me what that looks like and the power of Jesus in their life and how they lead our congregation in that. Hey, something else I wanna talk about is why we are setting aside time to read the entire passage beginning to end before each sermon. That was actually something that the early church did from literally like the first generations. We actually have records of what church services looked like in the first generation of Jesus followers. And one of the key portions was they would set aside as much time as they could to read as much scripture out loud as they could. You know why? Because nobody had copies of scripture. Usually there'd be one copy for the entire church. So picture this, you're following Jesus and you would come to gather and that was your chance to hear the scriptures that week. It, was, it would be like when you're waiting for that movie you're dying to see and it's only in theaters. The only access you have to that movie is you have to go to the theater to see it, right? Um, you had to go to the church to get the scriptures. That was where it happened. And so they would read the scriptures for a long time as an assembly. People would be hanging on every word, waiting to hear the next story about Jesus. And then a pastor would stand up and just say a few words of explanation. A few words of, hey, if you didn't catch it, this is what this means. And hey, here are some thoughts this week for how we might live this out. And then on the one hand, something beautiful happened. We got the technology and the resources to start putting Bibles in the hands of every member of the church so that people have one in their homes, they can read them whenever they want. And pretty soon it started seeming like a waste of time to read the whole thing out loud, we all have it. And so we just skipped right over the reading of the scripture to get to the sermon. And pretty soon you might get the idea that what people come here to hear is not the word of God, but a really compelling dynamic speaker give a message. And the personality of the pastor might be bigger than the word that we here. So we want to bring back that as a central part of our worship time together to, to make sure that we dedicate time to stop everything else and just hear the word of God read so that then what we have to say afterwards is what it ought to be, commentary and application on God's word, because his word is the thing that we are here for. In light of that, let's pray and jump into Ephesians chapter four. Lord, I pray that that is our, our method tonight that we will be people who are here to hear your word speak um, and that we will seek the scriptures um, to hear you speak and to meet Jesus and to be transformed by that. We love you and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, and it is, uh, it's, it's easy whenever we take chunks of scripture at a time the way we do here to kind of lose the through line. And so I just wanna draw attention to where we are in Ephesians as we get to the end of chapter four. There has been a, a consistent thought that, that, that Paul is laying out here 
that began a few weeks ago when we heard Dr. Gary Oliver talk, and he talked about what it looked like to know experientially the love of God. Paul prayed that God would strengthen the believers. And particularly, he wanted them to know two things. He wanted them to know his power and his love. So that's the the launching off point at the end of Ephesians 1 to 3 that talks about all the amazing things Jesus has done for us. Paul then prays, I pray that you would be strengthened by this knowledge, that you would be empowered by knowing God's strength, his power, and his love in your life. For what purpose? Well, chapter four, verse one tells us, I urge you to live a life worthy of that calling. And that word worthy can be a little confusing to us because it can make it sound like we're going out and earning what God has given us. What worthy means is just that corresponds, that matches. So if here's all the things Christ has done for us, then we should live a life that makes sense in light of that. So, So Paul says, I want you to be strengthened so that you can live a new kind of life And then, in where we are tonight, beginning in verse 17, we're going to see what that transformation process looks like unpacked. You must no longer live as the Gentiles, as the unbelievers do, but instead, you must live the new life that you've been taught in Christ. So we're going to talk tonight, what does it take to actually have a transformed life? How does that actually happen when people start to change? So let's take a look. Chapter 4, verse 17 I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And so as he describes the way Gentiles do, this is really fascinating because most of the Ephesian believers were Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. So what's going on here that that Paul writes a letter to a bunch of Gentiles and says, I don't want you to live like all of those Gentiles? What he's saying is you're not what you were. It would be like if there was, there was a way that defined American life. And he looked at a room full of Americans and said, hey, I don't want you to live like Americans anymore. And leaving behind what the parts of that culture that didn't honor God, and instead, I want you to live like this. He looks at the Gentiles and said, hey, you're not part of that anymore. You're not part of the culture and the people that you used to be a part of. You are now a part of something else. And he gives three main descriptions of what characterized their former lives. Uh, Look at these three words that pop off the screen here. He says that they, first of all, are darkened in their understanding. That something about our minds actually became darkened. We are not able to see things clearly. Uh, Things that should make sense no longer make sense to us. We don't reason the way we ought to. There's actually a capacity that humans are supposed to have to see what's good and to see what's not. And something has broken. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You see, God, when he creates the world, he looks at all the beautiful things he's made. and he, he, He sees the world and he says, this is good. He sees the produce, and he says, this is good. He sees Adam and Eve living together without shame, and he says, this is good. And then there comes a moment when humans see the thing that is forbidden, and it's so particularly the wording in the scriptures. It says, Eve looked at the fruit, and she saw that it was good. Eve looked at what would be deadly to her and thought it looked good for her. That's darkened understanding. 
when we see things that actually will bring death and we think, oh, that's gonna fulfill me, that's gonna bring life. He said, that's, that's life apart from Christ, is, is you don't reason rightly about what's gonna be good for you. So not only is their, their understanding darkened, they also have a relational problem. They are separated from the life of God. Their, their, their reasoning is, is broken and their relationship with God is broken. They are separated from him. And that separation is due to their own ignorance that comes from the hardening of their hearts. Now, we tend to think of ignorance as being something passive. You can't help being ignorant. But Paul follows it up with that their ignorance comes from a hardened heart. It's not that they couldn't help being ignorant. Actually, God is making what's available for them to learn truth. And that hardened heart, that stubborn will, resists being taught. And that leads to having lost all sensitivity. That they have given themselves over to chasing after everything that is death. And I don't know about you, but that characterizes my life apart from Jesus. That I I chase after things. I feel drawn to things that are going to destroy me. It is as if, you know that moment when like something goes rotten in your fridge and you open it up and the smell hits you and you just want to back away? Imagine how twisted it would be if you smelled that smell of death and went, ooh, that's good, and you leaned in for a bite. Like, that's what has happened to people. They see things that bring death and they think that's attractive and I'm drawn to it. Now, here's the important thing to notice. Paul has been describing up till this point a focus on the forgiveness that has come through Christ. That that in Ephesians 2, we saw that forgiveness, salvation, did not come from anything we've done. It's a gift of God. And yet, transformation still has to take place. Because being forgiven, but left in a pattern that brings death and destruction to you and everyone around you, is not salvation, right? Like, we need to be saved from more than just the guilt of our sin, Imagine if salvation looked like this. God said, hey, I forgive you and I love you, but I'm gonna go ahead and send you to hell. We all would go, that's not what I was looking for here. You see, we need more. Do we need God's forgiveness? Absolutely. But the end goal of God's forgiveness is so that we can be rescued from a life of sin and from all the death that comes from sin. And so now in chapter four, Paul's starting to say, what does that actually look like in your life now? We said this a few weeks ago. Eternal life doesn't have to begin after you die. God actually desires that you start experiencing the new life in the spirit today. And so Paul says, you you must not live like you used to. Instead, something different must take place. Look at verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. What does Paul say we learned when we heard about Jesus? It says the believers learned a way of life. Now that goes counter to most preaching that we will hear today when we introduce people to Jesus. Most of the time, we will say, we'll tell them about how broken they are in sin and how deadly that is and the consequences of that. And now if you wanna be saved, trust in Jesus and you're gonna be forgiven. 
nothing in there usually includes anything about a way of life. And yet Paul assumes that when people were first told about Jesus, that they were told about a new way to live life. Why is a new way to live life not a part of what happens when we introduce people to Jesus? My guess is, is that we all have a a massive case in the West of post-traumatic stress from legalism. We have all seen a kind of legalism that was so deadly that all it taught was how to obey and keep the rules and be a good person apart from the grace and love of Jesus that now we have swung the pendulum all the way to the other side and said, if you talk about obedience or living differently at all, that's legalism and we have to stay away from that. I actually heard one pastor whom I really respect and and love what he does, but I actually heard him say one time that you should never in a sermon tell people to do anything that all we should ever do in church is proclaim the grace and love of Jesus and then let the Spirit work out the rest. Now, my big problem with that is we would have to cut out like 70% of our Bibles if that was the way we were gonna talk because the scriptures are filled with commands, stop doing this and start doing that. So how do we deal with this tension between being taught a way of life and not falling into the pit of legalism. I think there's a few things we need to observe. J.I. Packer, a fantastic British theologian of the last century, he observed that we need to make sure we actually define what legalism is. Because a lot of people will say legalism is anytime you tell somebody to obey. If you start talking about behaviors that are good and bad, you're doing legalism. He says, that's not legalism. The legalism is one of two things. Legalism is either when you start thinking that you can get right with God by obeying regardless of what's going on in your heart, regardless of if you trust God, if you can just do the right things and put God in your debt. Or legalism is when you make up a rule that God never made and you make that binding on everyone else. If we're doing either of those two things, that's the kind of legalism that the scriptures reject. Either I think if I do all the right things, regardless of what's going on in my heart, then I can make God owe me salvation. Or I make up a rule that I think is a really good rule that God's never made, and I now tell everyone else that if they're going to be right with God, they have to keep my rules. That's the legalism of the Pharisees that Jesus found so disgusting. They were focused on keeping the rules while neglecting the heart of God, and they made up a whole bunch of rules that God never made and made everybody follow them. That's the legalism we must reject. That's the thing we must watch for and be careful of. But Paul says that in Christ, there actually is a new way to live. And the other thing we have to do to be able to fight this tension is recognize that the way of life that Christ calls us to is not a burden. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, following following me is actually good for you. This, is, this was a really hard thing for me to realize. I've been talking about my diet a lot in sermons. I don't know what's going on with that. But there was a point whenever I became an adult. That, and it was actually when I got married. Adulthood didn't do this. It was marriage that did this. And my wife started watching my eating habits, which basically consisted of Fruit Loops, Pop-Tarts, Oreos, and Campbell's Soup. And she went, I don't. I don't 
think this is gonna be good for you in the long run. And she said, you know that that cereal is literally like pouring milk over Skittles, right? And I said, that's ridiculous, you're exaggerating. And then we went and compared the nutrition facts and it was spot on. Like I was having Skittles for breakfast every morning. And at first, the thought of changing from the way I was living to something healthier, it looked like a devastating thing. Now it's taken me like 15 years to actually start to think about making that transition. Um, I had the talk with my doctor last year when he looked at, you know, they, they do that annoying thing. No matter what, I'm not there to talk about my weight. I'm there to talk about strep throat, but they still make me step on the scale. And he pointed out, hey, Nick, you, you've put on a lot of weight in the last two years. I was like, yeah, I know, it's kind of stressful. He goes, yeah, it's going to kill you. I was like, oh, okay. And at first, it felt like slavery. It felt like life itself was being ripped away to say, I'm not going to refill my Sprite four times at lunch. But underneath that change, somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that this change is actually going to be life-giving for me. I'm actually going to be transformed into something healthier and better by making a change in the way I eat. The first question I think we have to ask if we're going to start talking about the way of life Jesus calls us to is, do you actually think Jesus knows how to live better than we do? Do you actually think that living the life Jesus calls us to would be a better kind of life? Which comes back to what do you actually think about him? Do you have a view of Jesus as some cosmic killjoy that just wants to take your Skittles away? Or do you think Jesus actually loves you enough to know what's good for you. One children's curriculum I was looking at for a church has this phrase, they have three ideas they want kids to learn. And one of them I thought was so good was this, Jesus knows me better than I know myself, so I can trust him. One of the things we gotta ask if we're gonna talk about obedience to Jesus is do we really believe that he knows us better than we know ourselves? And he knows what's good for us better than we do if it's true that our understanding has been darkened, if it's true that we've lost sensitivity to what's good for us, do we trust that Jesus has something to say about the way we live that is not a legalistic burden, but actually a path to freedom and a path to a better way of life? So Paul assumes, hey, you learned a way of life when you came to know Jesus, and it's not like this. And then he tells us what we were taught in verse 22. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I have heard this passage taught so many times and for a long time when I heard this taught, two ideas were highlighted. Two big phrases, put off, your old self, and put on your new self. That phrase, put off and put on, uh, it's the language you would use for changing clothes. Take off an old set of clothes and put on a new set of clothes. And, and what's going on here is they're saying there's a way of life uh, that characterized who you are that just has to be set aside. That pattern of living needs to be left behind. 
But it's not enough to leave behind an old pattern of living. We actually need to put on something new. I have found this happens a lot in my life that I focus on just eliminating bad behavior. I say, I need to stop doing that. I need to stop thinking that. And something bizarre happens. When I'm obsessing about don't think that thought, don't think that thought, don't think that thought, you know what I'm doing? I'm thinking that thought over and over and over again. It's really twisted. And, and Paul said it's not enough to put off something deadly. It actually has to be replaced with something else. It has to be replaced with a kind of behavior that actually gives life. And I had heard this taught over and over again about this pattern of putting off and putting on. And it was just a few years ago that somebody pointed out that there's actually three actions to take place in this passage, not just two. Putting off the old, putting on the new, but in the middle is to be made new in the attitudes of our minds. And this was the process that had been missing so much in my life when I tried to experience life change. At first, it was just quit doing the bad things. And then I thought a next level of maturity was, okay, quit doing the bad things and try to do some good things. But the whole time, I was missing this idea that something had to be renewed in my mind. Now, the word mind here in the Greek, it, it, it encapsulates everything that is our inner person. Everything about what happens inside of us has to be transformed by God's spirit. And it's actually really cool. I'm not a, a counselor or someone who understands brain science at all, so I'm just telling you what other people have told me. But as we've learned more about how the human brain works, it's really cool the things that we have seen that God has put in place to make us work. Our brains are actually designed to grow and rewire to help us live life. You ever heard the phrase, it's like riding a bike? Do you remember first ride, learning to ride a bike? Remember how wobbly and terrifying it was? And then at a certain point, you got to the place where you just jumped on the bike and took off. I remember first learning to drive a car and, and how awkward and clumsy it was as I thought about every single step. Everything felt so difficult. And now I'm to the point driving where when I'm changing lanes, it is intuitive. I don't consciously think, check the other lane for a car. It's become a habit. That's because God actually made our brains to do that. That when we do a certain activity, our brains are actually made to adapt and create what we would call second nature, where we learn to do something reflexively. Because can you imagine how hard life would be if walking looked like having to consciously go lift my right foot and place it down? If we had to think like that, we wouldn't be able to make it through life. That's why traumatic injuries and surgeries are so hard is you often have to go back and relearn things that had become second nature. But God made our minds to learn these things and to pick them up. But just like everything good God has given us, sin can twist it. Because our brains can also learn bad habits. Our brains can also wire in a bad way. The first time I go, I feel anxious Therefore, I'm gonna to go to this unhealthy habit to cope with my anxiety. I make a little connection in my mind. And then when I do it again, that connection gets a little stronger and a little stronger and a little stronger until eventually it becomes a rut and that toxic behavior also becomes second nature. We can start doing that as 
effortlessly as we walk. A little bit of anxiety, go to that habit. A little bit of anxiety, go to that habit. And I believe there is spiritual insight into how transformation has to happen. That it is not enough just to say, stop doing this, start doing that. But something actually has to be renewed and transformed in our minds in the way we approach life. And that is actually the purpose when we talk about having a quiet time. When we talk about praying, when we come in here and sing songs, when we pray formational prayers, the reason we pray a prayer every time we pass the offering plate is we actually want to renew our thinking about giving. We want to learn to associate our generosity with the generosity of God. I remember one of the times this clicked for me, I think I've talked about it before when I got into a really bad rut with anxiety where I would go down a rabbit hole that I would lose hours and even days worrying about a single thing. And I remember one day that I fell in that rabbit hole, I was on a drive back home, it was a two hour drive, and the entire two hours was consumed with worry. And I got home and I walked in my house and I had been getting some great coaching, some help, and I knew I had to make a different choice. And it felt like having my arm ripped off to sit down in a chair and go, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna fixate on this anymore. And I just started praying the Lord's Prayer. And I did not have the clarity of mind or the willpower to do anything but repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over again for about 20 minutes. That's all I could do. And you know what? I still felt really panicky for a while. But in that moment, I was inviting, in a pretty clumsy way, I was inviting the Lord into a habit that had become destructive for me. So we've talked about some different ways to pray in here. Uh, A few weeks ago, I talked about the pattern I do of what happened, what did I feel, and what does the Lord say? Dr. Oliver gave us another one a couple weeks ago with the, the acronym PRAY, to pause, to rejoice, to ask God for help, and to yield. And the purpose of all of these little patterns that we're giving is because I don't know about you, but when I'm in that moment, I don't have the clarity of mind usually to just instantly see what I need to do. So what those little patterns do is they give us some tracks to walk on to begin to invite the Lord to renew our mind, to begin to take these patterns that are destroying us and say, God, I wanna give these to you so that we just have a little tutor, a little guide to begin to invite God to renew our mind so that transformation can start to take place, so that we can start to be renewed in this pattern of there's something I wanna leave behind, there's something I wanna take on, but Lord, you're gonna have to do some work on what's happening inside of me right now. You're gonna have to bring together all those fears and anger and anxiety and the false beliefs, the way I see the world that's not right, Lord, I need you to intercept all of that right now in the moment when I'm needing to learn a new habit. And the goal is is that over time, as we yield ourselves to God, that we start developing a new second nature. That we start to become the kind of people where when the moment arises, our reflex is to immediately look to the Lord for guidance. Can you imagine what that would be like? To be the kind of person who reflexively turns to the Lord in every situation. That's the pattern that Paul is calling us to in this passage. 
to learn a new way of life that is shaped so that all these patterns of worship that we do, where we come and sing to the Lord, where we hear teaching, it's all meant to help us make this transition. And from here, I think it's beautiful what Paul does because he goes on to list several examples. And if you pay attention, all of his examples follow the pattern of put off, put on, and a renewed way to see the situation. Look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. What's being put off? Lying, falsehood. What's being put on? Truth. But look at the renewed way to see the situation. For we are all members of one body. You see, he wants us to see that the person you're lying to is actually part of your family. He wants to renew the way we see the other. So there's a transformation of thinking that takes place that drives honesty. Honesty is not just stop lying and tell the truth. It's stop lying, recognize who the person you're talking to is, and tell them the truth. Look at verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, it's easy to miss this in our English translation. and It's a fine translation, but there's actually two commands here. It doesn't just say, in your anger, do not sin. There's actually a command, be angry and don't sin. Did you know that the scriptures command us to be angry? which means there is actually a healthy and good function of anger. That anger is there to, to animate us to address things that aren't right in the world. It's to deal with things that are frustrating or hurtful or scary to us. But Paul acknowledges that anger can often take hold of the wheel and steer us in a really toxic direction. So what has to be put off is the sinful actions we do in anger, and what has to be put on is a healthy, unsinful response to anger. But look at the renewal. Look at what he says. Do not give the devil a foothold. He says that anger that's allowed to simmer, you need to learn to recognize is a doorway for Satan to get a hold of your heart and do destructive things. Now, I was asked this recently. Um, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. If that meant there was some like rule that you had to deal with conflicts by sunset. And therefore, like, no matter what's going on in someone else's life, like, they could be in the middle of a serious season of grief and everything's horrible, but if you're angry with them, you need to have the conversation right now. Or else you're sinning and not letting the sun go down in your anger. I think we need to allow the scriptures to use figurative language sometimes. I think the point of don't let the sun go down in your anger is don't let things linger and fester. Address problems. Don't let things grow and grow in your heart until they get toxic. I think it's okay. Many times, uh, my wife and I will find this in our fights. Can we talk about a fight right now? Okay, thanks. I got the head nod. We often will recognize we reach a point. My wife is a night owl. Like, she, like, wakes up at 9 p.m., and I become a zombie at 9 p.m. And we often will recognize, like, it gets late enough at night that no progress is happening in this fight. And so we make a choice. Let's pick this up tomorrow. I don't think we're sinning against Ephesians 4.27 when we say let's pick this up tomorrow, okay? The idea here is deal with stuff in a healthy way and address it quickly. Don't let it linger and fester. Let's keep going, verse 28. He says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. What's the behavior that has to be put off? 
Stealing. What's, what has to be put on? Productive work. But what's the renewal that has to happen? No longer seeing life about getting your needs met, but rather being generous to others. So that your motivation for work is not just how can I get stuff to make my life happy, but your motivation for work becomes how can I be generous to others? Can I just beat up my millennial peers for a minute? We have a way of thinking that has another pendulum swing. Many of my generation is so turned off by the corporate ladder climbing that we saw the generation above us do that we've taken an approach to work that is do as little as I possibly can so that I can get by. Paul actually says, no, get out there and do something good and useful in the world so that you can be generous. Bring goodness into the world with your work. Don't get by with as little as you possibly can. Bring something of value to the world around you. Use the gifts you have to bless people. And then in verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. What's being put off? Destructive speech. What's being put on? Beneficial speech. So that, look at verse 30, do not grieve the spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. God's transforming us and doing a work in us. So why would we use our words to interfere with that work in other people's lives? Why would we use our words to tear people down when the spirit of God is actively at work building them up? When you recognize that the people in your life are people God's trying to build up, then that gives you a motivation for making sure your words are building them up too. And he concludes with a summation, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. That's what we're putting off. Instead, be kind and compassionate to each other and forgiving each other. Here's the renewed thought, just as Christ God in God forgave you. God's forgiveness of you transforms the way we see the wrongs of others so that we can forgive. The pattern, put off, put on, and in the middle, be renewed. I had to do this just this past week. It took me actually three tries before I recognized there was a problem. I had three situations all happen in one week that all had the same pattern. There was a conflict among some people that I cared about that I felt scared was gonna lead to disunity. And in all three of the situations, I tried to jump in the middle of the conflict manage it myself, even go between people, do a little triangulation, make sure this person knows what that person's thinking. And in all three situations, I made the conflict worse. And somehow I became the bad guy. That's not fair. I was just trying to help. And then in community group this last week, Will Spicer was leading us through a prayer on Ephesians 4 about maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And as we were praying through that, it hit me. I wasn't trying to maintain the unity of the spirit. I was trying to force the unity that comes from Nick. I had all kinds of horrible ideas about my ability to control, pride that wanted me to be right and everyone to recognize I had the answer. And so I had to choose. There's a behavior of stepping in and trying to control that I've got to let go of. And there's a new behavior of recognizing when to speak and when to stay silent. But in between there is I needed to recognize it's the spirit that creates peace, not me. It's the spirit that creates unity. And so I need to trust him to do that instead of assuming that I can play God and fix other people. So what do we do now? Here's the challenge I wanna give us as a congregation. What's one area 
of transformation that you think God might wanna do in you this week. We're gonna take a couple of minutes of silence, just some quiet, and whether it's in your Ephesians book or maybe in a note on your phone, I wanna challenge you. Identify what behavior you wanna see taken away in your life. You wanna set aside. And identify what the positive opposite of that might be. And then in the middle, what's true about God in the world that you need to have renewed in your thinking? You might not get to an answer tonight. You might spend some time praying and reflecting on it and realize, I'm not sure. And then if that's the case, you want a really good answer? Invite some people who know you really well to give you an answer. I bet they have one. (laughs) Invite them into it. Invite your community group. Invite a family member. Invite a roommate. And what would it look like if for the next seven days, you committed time to prayer over, the, over one issue, one behavior that you need to set aside, a new one that you need to put on, and a renewal of mind that you want the Spirit to do in your life. Uh, people from the prayer team are gonna be down at the front, and if you'd like someone to actually even process that with, someone to pray with you, we would love to invite you to come down and do that or turn to the person next to you and pray. But let's just take a moment, because transformed living is going to require a transformed mind. And that's what the Spirit of God wants to do in us right now. Lord, we love you. We thank you uh, that you offer the resources by your Holy Spirit to be changed. That your desire for us is not burdensome, it's not heavy, it's not enslaving, it's actually freeing. That we need to be saved not just from our guilt, but also from our behavior. So we submit that to you now, in the name of Christ. We'd like to welcome our our prayer team up front. And uh, if there's something you would love to share and and have prayed over in the renewal of your mind, we welcome even in this time to pray. And together, could we even take a moment and even sing this next song as a prayer over ourselves.
transformation within us? Would you stand and sing these words as a prayer for ourselves? You turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the circle the info booth out in the foyer our prayer teams continue to be available whether it's to celebrate or to grieve with and family if we could could we go to northwest arkansas go in peace to love and serve the lord and the people said we love you mosaic